Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. If you ask Alex Mena how he became the new executive editor of the Miami Herald, he could start a couple of different ways. He could tell you how he was once a 19-year-old kid answering the phones at the Miami Herald, working at the Miami-Dade College student paper with a second job making subs, or he could tell you about crossing the Rio Grande. His family fled Nicaragua as the Sandinistas took over. At 11 years old, Alex crossed part of the Mexican desert and waded across the river. He sat up on his father's shoulders, even though neither of them could swim. And that's how he became the first immigrant ever to lead the Miami Herald and the Nuevo Herald. Both are South Florida stories, stories of hustle and displacement. Like so many immigrants, Alex found his village here, in Hialeah to be exact. He found his passion, his people, in the newsroom. Now Alex is in a position to lead them, at a time when newspapers are in flux. The Herald is a leaner paper, but its reporters still do some of the best reporting in the country. They won their 24th Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the condo collapse in Surfside two years ago. They aren't afraid of a challenge, and clearly, neither is the new guy in charge, Alex Mena. Welcome, Alex. How are you doing, Carlos? Good to see you. I know. It's great to see you. It's great to actually be able to catch up on the radio because we were colleagues for many years uh, at the Herald. Uh, although I could, I, I'm always going to be a junior. I would always have been a junior colleague of yours because you, you you've been now at the paper how long? So I started there in 1993, so minus a two-year absence where I worked at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. I've been there 28 years, so Amazing. altogether 30 years. Amazing. I mean, and, and even that, like, it's still South Florida, so, like, you have yeah. such a such institutional knowledge, which I think in newspapers, um, when you're covering a, a, a local community, it's so important, you know, to have that institutional knowledge. And I think about just when we were thinking about your story and, like, how you got to be where you are, immigration is one of those stories that's always going to be a South Florida topic, right? Absolutely. You know, it's like it's one of those things that really unite a lot of us. You know, when you look at South Florida and 70% of, of my, you know, Dade County population is Hispanic and a lot of them came from other countries, you know, and it's it's who we are. Right. Like most of the people from Miami were born somewhere else. I mean, I was born here, but yeah. but my parents certainly came over, you know, from Cuba. And, um, and I think about that, and especially now when I see a story like yours. And I see, I see like what's being replayed on the Mexican border. I think yeah. like that is your story, right? Yeah. No. When I when I when I look at you know the TV, you know the news, and then I see all these people crossing Rio Grande, you know, I'm like, well, that could have been me. That could have been you know my dad and I crossing. It could have been my mother, my sister, my nieces when they had to cross. I mean, it's it, it's kind of a, a a memory that's seared into your mind, even though it was so long ago. It's something that I will never forget. Right, because you were old enough. Like at 11 years old, you have clear memories of both your life before and your life here. So like you remember that trip, that's that's etched in your mind. No, I mean that that trip is it's it's unforgettable. Just so, just like I still remember, you know, when I was six years old, mm -hmm. uh, when the Sandinistas came in, you know, into our port town. You know, my family's from Corinto in Nicaragua, and and I remember all of our friends that we thought were friends. Once that night passed, where the Sandinistas were in town. I remember how everybody was throwing rocks at our house. Oh wow! And and I and I would tell my my mom like, "What is this? What's going on?" And they're like, "Don't worry about it. It's nothing." And I said, "Sounds like people are throwing rock at us. Why is that?" And she tried to kind of just you know play it off like it wasn't a big deal. But things like that, even even at a young age, you, you will never ever forget. Right. You start you start identifying with oh, there's different groups and and there's different ideologies here yeah. all of a sudden you know and you don't you don't think in those terms as a kid but 
but those memories are still fresh. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's kind of a, an important part of who I am and and how I became. Is is having all those memories, just like I, you know, when my parents decided that they needed to get me out of Nicaragua when I was 11 years old. Because once you reach a certain age, at that time, you couldn't leave unless you served in the military. So their main goal was to get me out before I turned 12. Oh, this is a big uh, uh, something that I can relate to because the the Cuba story is very similar. I've I've had family that you know they were separated because one of their three children. Uh, was going to turn military age yeah. before they got their visas. So they all got their visas, but by the time they were getting ready to leave, he would have turned 15 and, and had, would have had to stay behind. So his whole family stayed. Yeah. So your parents were up against that decision as well. Yeah, and, and it became you know a point that my mother and my sister had to stay behind because I needed to leave. So you know when we first left, it was my, my father and I uh, and my, you know, my oldest brother, you know, we... We got a plane ticket to the only place that we were able to go, and that's Mexico. Oh wow! So, so it was just the three of you then. And and my uh, brother's uh, wife, you know, also came with us. So take me through. I think it's important. Like mm-hmm. these stories are these stories never get old, yeah. right? Because they are so full of um, this passion and this this emotion, right? That that people are living through right now, and it explains like why we are in the place that we are. Yeah. So when you guys came over, take me through that story. Like obviously, you're you're reaching your close to military age. Yeah, and and at that point, it's like when we had to get you know my passport in order, and then you know somehow my my parents knew okay Mexico we can get a visa to go to Mexico, so we went to Mexico. I, I'm curious though, like at 12 years old, were you thinking about those things? Like when they told you about military and serving in the military, how did that strike you as a little kid? Well, I mean. It's something that was happening in life because mm-hmm. in our neighborhood, you know, you know, at this point, the Sandinistas had been in power for five years. I could see people coming from the mountains that were fighting in, you know, in, in, in caskets. In our neighborhoods, you had young men who had been killed in, you know, in, in the mountains. Kids, kids that any kids or family that you oh, knew? Well, people that were across from us, you know, people that were in the neighborhood, people that we knew, you know, and I know that we, you know, we would talk about it and we would go to the... Uh, uh, to the velorios, yeah, to, to be able to, to to be able to go there and 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 you know and be with the family, but you could see that the death that was happening all around, you know, it was impossible even as a kid. You know, by the time I turned eleven years old, it was a vivid thing that yes, this could happen to me. You know, when I turned twelve, I could go into that, and that's when you know again my my parents mobilized to try to do uh, the best that they could, and that was to get me out. Well, to be to be a kid at that age, I think is when you sometimes it's when you have a grandparent die or sure. some somebody close to you, and you start thinking about mortality for the first time. But you were seeing it in a very different way. You were seeing it come to your door yeah. in that way. I guess there, there's got to be a, a point where when the, your parents tell you that you're leaving the country. Now, I mean, I, I know some kids that you know their whole lives they came here because their parents thought you know same thing. They might they might be uh, conscripted for service. But there's still a part of them that misses home. Did well, you feel like that? Well, it was it was harder for me in that sense because mm-hmm. uh, when when the Sandinistas came when I was six years old, you know, they arrested my father. Oh, really? Then you know, my father and my uncle. But why was that, why did that happen? Because he was part of the Somoza government. They were you know they they were working with the military you know and uh, so he was arrested. And then back then, what typically happened after you were arrested the first time, they would free you. And they would come back and get you again. So my father, when they freed him the first time, he left Corinto to Managua to be with one of my brothers. He basically escaped uh, our town. So for the next five years, you know, my mother and my sister were really the ones raising me 
because my dad couldn't come back. That and and you're and you're the youngest of seven. Youngest at seven, and then so what ended up happening? You know, when it was time for me to go, I was leaving my mother behind, leaving my sister behind, because I had to leave with my father, because it's just the way things were. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it, it was it was a big moment for me to to be separated for the first time from you know from my mother. And that and was there a part of you that like obviously you knew this had kids they do what yeah. their parents tell them, but was yeah. there a part of you that was pushing back like no I want to stay or. I, you know, I don't quite recall how I felt at that particular moment other than I was very sad that I had to leave leave her behind. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, it was one of those things that we had to do and, and, and there was a reason to do it, you know, and they were doing it for me. Maybe I didn't quite understand that in, in those terms at that time, but, but now I clearly understand what, what it was, the sacrifices for them to do that. Right. How, how long were you separated from your mom and your sister? So we ended up being separated, I think, about five months. They came in you know, pretty pretty much right after we did. Wow. So, I mean, but five months feels like an eternity when yeah. you're that age, right? Yeah, yeah, you know. And your life was where? In, in, in Hialeah? Yeah, in Hialeah, in Hialeah, yeah. Basically, you know, you know, when, when we got to Mexico City, uh, from there, we, you know, we went to... Uh, uh, Matamoros, which is the the border town to uh, to Brownsville, okay. where we're going to cross the border. Uh, you know, I I remember really vividly how you know it all kind of happened because when we got to to the crossing, that's where the coyote was supposed to kind of take us across. So th- there's an element of like yeah. when you fly from Nicaragua to Mexico, everything is very orderly. Yeah. You're in a plane, and then yeah. things are you know there's an infrastructure. But now you find yourself at the edge of the desert in a border town, waiting with a coyote. Yeah, that's gonna take. How about how big was the group that was going? I mean, I, I mean, it seemed like a very large group. Uh, but then I remember that you know, I'm, I don't know if it was Mexican police, but it was certainly a, a an official patrol vehicle that came in. Somebody in uniforms. In uniforms, you know, and basically grab our our coyote, our coyote and beat beat him to death is what it looked like to me and threw him on the back of a pickup truck and left wow so you were a little boy and you were witnessing like really this intense violence yeah like a really intense violence and would then would stay with you you thought that maybe he was killed yeah i mean and, and i don't know maybe, maybe that's the case i i never knew what happened to that poor poor man um but ultimately the adults you know i remember them having a conversation saying we need to cross so yeah. like the, the your leader your the leader of your group this this coyote that was taking you across gets whisked away by guys in uniform yeah. and now you're all left Alone. to your own devices yeah. in was it dark in the middle was it day it, it, it was it was nighttime by this point and and basically you know the again the adults I'm not sure if my father was part of the conversation mm-hmm. but I heard the adults saying we need to cross now into the United States before they come back wow cuz we we didn't know what was going to happen next obviously I mean it's it's so you and your brother and your father follow this group and just head, literally and, head towards the river. Yeah, you know, and I didn't know how to swim. So my dad says, just get on, you know, get on my back. My dad didn't know how to swim either. And, you know, so we were kind of crossing, you know, crossing the river. And for him, it was basically, there's only one way, and that's forward. And he always told the story on how the water got to his chin. Oh, as he's crossing with you on his shoulders in the water, right? Yeah, and and I never, I never saw that. To me, it was a lot of water, sure. but I didn't, you know. But I can't even imagine how scared my father was when that happened. Yeah, and it was, and you just have to think about how scary the opposite was, right? Yeah. Like the the idea of turning back, how much more desperate that would have been than crossing a river with it yeah. really up to the up to your mouth, yeah. you know. And you get to this other side, and you you kind of encounter a new life, and. I'm curious, just like when you get to the other side and you guys are all standing there, what are your memories of that? Well, all I remember is like we start walking. 
hmm. aimlessly. We don't know where we're going. We're just walking. And I could just, you know, as a child, I could remember this is a forest. Oh, you it were just, like it among just, trees. It just, it just looked like a bunch of trees in a forest. And I'm like, well, where are we going? Where, where, where is this? How, you know, what's going to be uh, uh, our future here? What's going to happen? And then, you know, the U.S. Border Patrol caught us uh, because I was a minor. You know, they decided to free my father and myself. Uh, my brother and his wife, you know, were, were, were jailed because they needed to, to be processed. Right. And the Border Patrol actually bought us bus tickets to go to Houston. Oh, wow. They bought us the tickets to go to Houston so that our family in Hialeah could Western Union money to us uh, to, to get a Greyhound to, to Hialeah. Oh, wow. So you must have such vivid memories of that of that whole time. And, and I imagine that like when you now, when you leave your daily life, you know, and you go to the job and you're working and you have reporters that are reporting you about these these immigrant stories, these flights of, of immigrants that might have made yeah. the same trip and that are then rounded up and then flown to other states, like, uh, you know, famously uh, um, the, the governor of Florida, um, like... Yeah, Martha's worked, Vineyard, yeah, yeah. Yeah, worked to fly immigrants. Uh, and, they, and they were migrants who would come through the system to fly yeah. them to a different part of the country. Those things must strike you with a real with a real intensity to think about those folks. Well, yeah, absolutely, because, it, you know, again, every time I see the news... I hear about this. I just think about my experience because it's impossible not to not to tie it together. That could have been me. Yeah. So many instances that I see, uh, you know, all the bad things that are happening on the border, you know, and 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 this flights like that could have been me. Yeah. Where would my life have led if that would have happened to me? Right. Certainly, you might not find yourself as the uh, the executive editor of the Miami Herald. So, so, certainly not, you know, and and that's kind of you know why you know it, it's important for people to understand and know the story of how we all got here because it it really makes me the person that I am today because you know they're bad memories, horrible me- memories at times, but you can't forget things like that because that that makes you the person that you are makes you more understanding of everybody's issues not just in immigration you know you see a homeless person you know you see all you know the poverty that we're, that we're having here sometimes in south florida mm-hmm. it, it, i feel like it just gives you a, a better sense of humanity yeah really it's what it is an empathy and a yeah. sympathy for for people who are who are struggling yeah our guest today is alex mena he was recently named the executive editor of the Miami Herald, and he's the first immigrant in that position. Alex, I, I want to talk to you more about that because you're, there's two sides, right? And, and this goes, I think it's so important for a, a guy that's in your position, right? That's leading the news coverage at a, at a major, the, the major newspaper in our, in our town and one of the biggest newspapers in the country, one of the most important newspapers in the country, is a guy who has that immigrant experience. Like we said, something like 60% of all people are, are born somewhere else who, who make their lives here. But you've lived a full life here in South Florida, so you want, you have this context for what a lot of people are going through, right? Versus someone who's coming from the outside. And you know, and, and this is what I always tell people about South Florida. You know, South Florida is diverse, but there's diversity within diversity. You have Nicaraguans, you have Cubans, you have uh, Hondurans, you have Venezuelans. We're, we're we're all Hispanic Latinos. But we all have our differences. Oh man! And the yeah. way we we talk, the way we we cook our food, you know, ropa vieja and and carne menuzada is the same thing, <laughs> but it's cooked differently. You and know? the seasonings are a little different, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And, but 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 it, but it's still it's our, our culture and it's different. And those are the nuances really uh, that that are important for somebody to understand South Florida because we're not we're not all the same. Right. 
and, and I'm curious about how you, you begin to understand South Florida. You know, like I said, it's, it's so important to have somebody who's from here, who understands, who has so, much, so many years, so many decades of context to be able to then, you know, put people in a position to write about the yeah. news that is so impactful, you know, that, that it's not just about, uh, you know, when you talk about real estate, it's not just high rises, it's who, who can afford to live there, yeah. especially when you, you know, to be able to live here. And, and so take me to like a, a kid who has, you have this background, you have this entire 11 years of real knowledge growing up in Nicaragua, and then you find yourself in Hialeah. Paint me a picture for how, how, that, how different that was for you and how you begin to adapt there. Well, I remember the, the first winter uh, th that I felt in South Florida. I know it's a lot warmer now than it used to be, <laughs> but I remember walking to school and how cold it was. Like I've never felt a cold like that in my life. Oh, you had one of those one of those uh, those cold snaps that was like in the forties yeah, or something this, like that. This is in, in yeah, nineteen eighty four. I think it was probably like Jan. Uh, actually, maybe in eighty five, January of eighty five. Uh, when you know, I had to walk to uh, Milam. That's my elementary school in Hialeah, uh -huh. and and it just felt like the the sidewalk was frozen. It's just you know, as a little kid, it's just something that that I'm not used to coming from a a, a much warmer environment at that time, uh, and 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 I remember just getting to know my classmates. I was in a classroom that was kind of. Uh, Everybody in that classroom had some sort of level of Spanish speaking and they were learning English and right. we were all at different levels, you know, learning, you know, through ESOL and all of that. Uh, and, and I remember the the first week I was in school, uh, the first the first day that we had PE, but I didn't know what PE was. Right. Uh, it was a square dancing day. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody that grew up in South Florida in our era, because I think we're about the same age, yeah. had yeah part of PE like square dancing class was how it was part of physical but, fitness. But that but that was my first class, my first day. So then the second day, I say, oh, so we have dance class every day. Everybody laughed at me because it's like, what do you mean dance class? Because I you know I didn't know it was PE. It was part of part of doing that. So that's kind of just a that little thing. And square dancing is like such a yeah. southern, like it tells you yeah. how much we still have like a, a, a southern influences yeah. in South Florida on top of all the immigrant yeah. influences, you know. You know, I, I'm curious, you know, that that must have been so formative for you because I can remember, you know, growing up in a Spanish-speaking household and then being confronted with English for the first time. And a lot of it, I, my memories are muted, you know, are, are mute, you know, yeah. like I just remember in pantomime. And, and I'm curious what it was like to be in a classroom with like what what was your classroom like how was that different from from you know your classroom in Nicaragua at 11 12 years old i mean, i mean it's it, it, the biggest difference was obviously the, the the language barrier because you know when the teacher was speaking mm -hmm. i had to ask one of my classmates what did she say you oh, know, so you had like your classmates were your interpreters yeah that that's how it had to be wow. you know because we we you know but that's how you learn somehow i was watching tv watching cartoons you know, a lot of people, I think, learn English by watching cartoons. Yep. All, all I know is that all of a sudden, I was understanding English, and I was speaking it. And to be perfectly honest, I don't remember when that happened. Right. It was within a six to eight month period that all of a sudden, I could understand it. And, and it's and, and to this day, I'm kind of fascinated by, by, by that growth in, in me and being able to learn that language. Uh, to a point that, you know, f for a while, we pretty much were moving every year. You know, oh, we were really? renting, so we were moving from one place to uh, to another. Because, you know, back then we had uh, probably about eight of us in in a two-bedroom apartment. And as uh, more family members, you know, my cousins, my aunts would come here, they would all 
stop over and live with us wow, for so a you, few months. So so that seven, eight people became 13, 14. That's amazing. That you know, is amazing. At, at a time because we, we were now the base and, and, you know, as people got, you know, jobs, then they moved to their own apartment. But it was, you know, it was a... A very very complicated life where where you know uh, at night when everybody was sleeping the entire living room was basically people sleeping and then two bedrooms you know people were sleeping too. Wow, you guys were like a halfway house until yeah. people got on their feet and, yeah. and started and started going out and making a making a living on their own. Yeah, and and so so you know so part of that like like I said, I became the the person in the household that spoke English. Who when we had to we had to move from one apartment to an ex the one that we called the water department to change our change our address or call the you know fpl to say okay we're moving here you was know? that was you that was that, you making that, that, all the important phone calls yeah and they were and they, they kept asking me how old are you and you know and i would tell them i'm like but my dad's here he says it's okay for me to talk oh that's so funny yeah yeah that i i get that can, i can't imagine like your father saying well, what is she saying and yeah. what are they saying you know, and and I guess to a kid, I mean, I, we've come across it before. Sometimes you're an immigrant kid, and you're so young, and you're exposed to these things, mm-hmm. these things that are way bigger than you. You know, they're they're above your above your your age bracket. You yeah. know, of the things that you should be experiencing. But and, you have to grow up fast. I mean, there's no there's no way around it. Like the family needs you to be able to communicate. You know, and you become the the sole interpreter of 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 life for an entire family. Right. I'm curious how that, you know. For someone who who you know came over and then decided, you know that you guys start you start making a living here. You know you you end up going to college. You yeah. end up going to, to Miami Dade uh, to begin with, right? Yeah. And so, what was your vision then about what your what your life would be? And what were your parent? Did your parents have expectations like be an X Y Z or uh, no? They they really they they never forced any expectations on me. It's mm. always been whatever I wanted to do and whatever I was able to do. So obviously. Uh, going to college has its limitations um, because I needed to help the family, uh, you know, to be able to support the family. You know, we, we we all worked and we all had to, you know, share on the expenses. So, you know, you I would take courses based on how much money I had left to be able to, you know, to pay for the classes. Oh, so you your your monthly bank account, like you're like you'd say, oh, I have X amount, I can pay for. Two for, classes, for three two classes. classes, three classes, or whatever it was, and wow. that's and that's how you kind of started. You know, that's what that's why I started working at Subway to help uh, support the family, and then you know I also got the job at the Herald as a clerk. So for a little bit, I was actually doing, uh, you know, three jobs. Yeah, because because I was actually working for the student newspaper as well. So maybe four when you say when you add in the education. So I was working for a student newspaper, uh, working at Subway, working at the Herald, and then studying. And and what was I mean? You're obviously really struggling, really working hard to make a career and have a living. Mm-hmm. And so, why was it that that journalism caught so much of your attention that you thought this is where I want to put my energies and this is what I'm I'm going to take my hard-earned subway mm-hmm. money and put it into paying for classes to be a journalist? And well, actually, you know, so while I was while I was at a, at Miami Dade College, mm-hmm. I still didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I had ideas of of, of being in TV TV production. You know, because when when I graduated high school, what I wanted to do is actually TV. But you knew right away that you wanted to go to college. Was that something yeah. your parents? Stressed? No, no, no. That that, that was me. I mean, it, it it was kind of like one of those things that you know, whatever I I needed to do, as long as I could afford it, I could do. And why was that? Did you see it in other people and kids that you thought this is a thing I need to do? I need to go to college. I need to do this thing next. I I don't know if I if I saw it as a thing that I needed to do right away, 
but it became a, a path that I needed to take. I had to try. I didn't know if I was going to be able to, to get through it. Because again, you know, you had my, you know, my brothers and my sister working at factories. What what kind of jobs are your brother and sisters doing? Like my sister was, you know, basically uh, ironing, ironing clothes in a factory. My other brothers were working for uh, mattress making factories. I mean, it's it's different types of job. My dad was working at a gas station as an attendant. So everybody had, you know, important jobs for things that the community needed. Uh, you know, so me doing a, you know, going to college almost felt like a, like a huge privilege because everybody else was working so hard to do what they needed to do. And, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't not try it. Right. Even and, though it was going to be hard and it was hard having to do multiple jobs. And it, and it seems like you, you had to have a job. You're like, I need to contribute back to the household, yeah. but I also want to do this for myself. Yeah. But to do this for myself, I got to contribute to the household first. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's always the first expectation that you had to, you know, give back to the household to in order to be able to do everything that we needed to do. What, what, talk to me about some of the moments then when you find yourself, you know, going through this education and then you, you, you're working at the Herald where you have a, those moments of epiphany that make you decide, oh, this is a thing that I want to continue doing. This is a, a career path that is, that is worthwhile of all this extra work that I'm doing. Well, for me, like, you know, once I became a clerk, I could see other people, you know, reporters, editors, designers, and doing the great work that they were doing, and I just felt an admiration for what they were doing. I just felt that it was like an important work that they were doing, uh, and and I wanted to follow that. What what kind of stories did you see that, that you were in the presence for, that you were in the room for when, when big things were happening? Because I know that can be very, like, I remember uh, being at the, at the Sun Sentinel mm-hmm. uh, when, uh, when there was the... Um, uh, the the bombing the bombings of the uh, at the Olympics in Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, and we were covering it from here and I remember leaving the the paper and then turning around and driving back to the paper even though I was an intern yeah and I, I'm curious what some of those stories were early on that really gripped you well early on I mean I, so I started you know my my career in sports mm-hmm. so I would say the first ten years of, of of my career were all sports so so it, it was moments in, in 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 sports history like I always remember. Uh, when the Marlins won their first World Series. Nine. It was just kind of one of those things that, you know, we were in the office, you know, because I needed to do the box score. Right. And <laughs> that, that's what you, that was your job at the point. Like, as yeah. a clerk, you're doing a lot of those odds and ends that you see yeah. in the paper that, that need to get done. Yeah, so oh, it's oh, beyond the writing and the and the pictures, right? Exactly. It's doing, it's doing the box scores, doing the golf results, doing the horse racing boxes. You know, it's uh, it, it, things that make you, I think, appreciate the work that you do. I remember the first time that I was, you know, learning how to be a clerk and I had to, you know, do the standings. Mm-hmm. So the person that's teaching me, I tell him, okay, so who who calculates how how does how does stands get calculated? He gave me a calculator and says, You're the You're the calculator. You're the calculator. <laughs> you need to figure it out. And to me that was so eye opening because I remember like, you know, I was very, very much a, ba- a big baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I would always get upset. I'm like, why didn't I get my, my, my box score for the Mets? I was a Mets fan before the Marlins came to town. Yeah, same, same And, and I well. said, why, why didn't we get the, you know, the Mets game? The Mets game ended at 10.30. Why isn't the paper have my, my you know, my, my game? And then as I became a clerk, I realized it, it, there's a infinite things of things that must happen in order for you to get that result. You have to finish it on time. It has to get to you on time. Somebody has to put it in the paper, put it online or whatever. You know, it's it, it just kind of, 
opened up a world for me that I never knew existed, which is basically how how journalists do the work from that small little tasks to the big ones. Right. And it's 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 interesting to me that it, like a passion in sports is kind of like what led you in that direction because yeah. it was for me too. You know, I was a sports writer for a long time. And I'm curious what was your what did you love about baseball? When did you get introduced to it? What did you why did that why did you fall into that path? So so I Since we didn't have a team here. Yeah, so I mean, so I got here in, in 1984. And I don't know why I, I like Gary Carter. Oh, the well, I was going to say the amazing Mets. <laughs> and then 86 yeah. happened. And it's yeah. like it was, it's hard not to kind of follow the New York Mets after winning the, the World Series. And I'm like, oh, man, I, I picked a great team. You know, we're going to be winning for a long time. And the, and the <laughs> 80s was good. But then the Atlanta Braves showed up. And, uh, and it was not so good. And for, it wasn't good for a long time. Yeah. Our guest today is Miami Herald executive editor Alex Mena. He started working at the Herald at 19, and now he's in charge of the whole thing. Alex, I'm you know you come in the door as this kid taking box scores and just learning the the mechanics of a newspaper, and then there's a point right where it switches and it becomes. I imagine you start seeing like the impact, the effect that a newspaper has in a neighborhood, in a community. Tell me about that for you. Like when when was a time where it really starts to dawn on you? that this place that you're in has a voice in this community that, that you're all a part of? Well, you know, so when, when I was a clerk, I got the opportunity to write stories. I was able to write some stories for neighbors. I was able to cover some football games. And just going out there and saying, I'm here with the Miami Herald, people just look at you and be like, oh, wow, you're here with the Miami Herald. And you you start to realize at that point that you are a big part of the community they they want you there they want you to to cover their their events you're telling their stories yeah the story the story of them and and that's why you know now you know i i keep telling people that the miami herald it's all about the community we have to give back to the community constantly we have to be out there you know because uh, it, what we do is important telling the stories of the people uh, who make up our community? It, it's really the, the the most powerful thing we can do. And I remember being an athlete in South Florida and seeing my name as a as a teenager in the box score. Like if you got you know one line yeah. in it, and it's how thrilling that is. And the truth is, no one else is telling those stories. Yeah. Like like if you can start you know local coverage. One of part of local coverage is high school sports. Yeah. And if those stories are not being covered by the New York Times or CNN, like those stories, those local stories are can only be told by a local newspaper. No, and 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 again, this is one of one of the biggest things. Sometimes I I, I get you know a a commentary is like, well, why why should I get the, the the Miami Herald when I can get the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? And what I tell people is basically, you know, when when Surfside happened, when that tower collapsed, yeah, we were there. Right. Everybody in the world came to report that story. Yeah. Two months later, when people were leaving, we were there. You were still we were still there. A year later, we were still there. Today we're still there. We're the only ones that that, that could do that kind of work. Right. When you talk about not never forget, right? Which yeah. obviously we talked about. You know, and, and and that's and that's a community newspaper. Right. We are here for the community to tell the story and to find out what happened and why and how we can avoid that from happening again and that's why you know i always tell people that why should you subscribe to the miami herald because we're here for you right 
you're actually the ones who who stay who is not just the yeah. the it's not just the spark but it's the slow burn yeah right um and we had we'd had uh nick nihamas earlier um earlier this year talking about because he did he worked also on the on the surfside yeah. reporting and um and I, i'm curious you know because you know those stories are so important right like that's that's the value right yeah so talk to me about keeping that value in other words newspapers are at a time where obviously things get slimmer they get bought by by investment firms like like the the herald is bought, was bought by a hedge fund like hedge funds have bought a lot of newspaper companies so talk to me about some of the challenges that you have of leading a paper now right to with, with you know with resources get, being tight and still trying to do that important work well, i think that you know the the resources have always been tight i remember when i started the herald we had more than 400 people in the newsroom and it was still not enough mm. you know we have to make the best that we can with the resources available and you have to make choices as to what is important for us to cover what what coverage is important to us and you know and and to us that's that's the choice you decide what you're going to have to stop doing and what you're going to continue doing and obviously doing the investigations is something that's very important to our community you know to be able to continue to do that kind of work I mean, you know, frankly, the our reach is far greater now than it ever was. You know, when we had a circulation of over 500,000, it was 500,000. Right now, we're getting millions of people from all over the world being able to read our coverage. Because of the internet. Because of the internet. So so our reach is, is far greater than it ever has been, and it will continue to grow because of that. And and so that's, yes, we're, we're facing those challenges, but we're, we're also facing... Uh, some great opportunities because we can be, you know, far powerful in our reach. Right. You talked about what coverage is important, and I can't help but think of this story that I saw recently about um, people who were parking RVs in their in front of their houses in Hialeah and then renting them almost as if they're as if they're you know a studio apartment, yeah. you know. And it it goes to so much about affordability. And I remember for a time the, the Herald wasn't covering Hialeah because of resources and you're you're deciding where you put and that's a clear example of of how when you deploy your sources how these stories that are that speak so much about what's happening in a community come out no no definitely and, and to me you know when when i became the you know the deputy managing editor over seeing on mobile herald mm -hmm. one of my priorities making sure that we hired somebody to cover hialeah how, right. do, you, how do you not cover you know, one of the largest cities in Florida. You know, to me it was like an, a no-brainer, and, and really one of my first hires was our Hialeah reporter, uh, Veronica Eguibrito, that's been really doing fantastic work in Hialeah. I mean, the RV story, she wrote it, you know. That, oh, is that right? She, she wrote that story. I mean, she is in there uh, trying to do the things, uh, you know, that, that our community are interested in. You know, when whenever, you know, there were issues with the water bill, we wrote about that because of her, you know, she is out there doing the type of work that's important, you know, and, and, and that's, again, you know, our resources are not what they used to be, but you have to be able to deploy them the right way. And having a reporter in Hialeah, to me, was one of those musts. Right. I mean, I, and I think that that speaks to somebody who understands this community, right? Somebody who grew up in Hialeah, yeah. you know, to understand that, that this is um, this is a place that's like that's the next spot for gentrification yeah. too, right? Like where you have investments coming from outside um, and property values get so expensive that people are parking an RV out front yeah. and, and renting it because that's the only way that, that, you, can, that you can live, that you can have, have a place to live. 
talk to him about some of the places that some of the 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 issues that you think are important and and some of the coverage beats that you think are important that deserve a little bit of of limelight well i mean like i said real estate is one thing that's very important you know the as, as uh affordability becomes a bigger and bigger issue mm-hmm. we need to continue you know showing that and how people can get a better value out of places you know to me that's one of the most important things uh, that we have to do you know as we as we write about you know different cities you know we have to be able to find those nuggets like the the small businesses that are the the core of our communities you know to me it's important for us to be able to write about about those those people you know people who look like us they want they want to see themselves in their coverage and it's important for us to go out into the communities you know, one one example is that you know I'm going to one of these events and and I'm talking to uh, uh, two people uh, who invented a a technology called TapTalk. Okay, tell me about that. So that so that technology basically it's a card, it's a business card. Mm-hmm. You tap your phone and all your information is in there: your phone number, uh, your social media accounts, uh, and and anything you need to know about that person. Now, what I realized about these two uh, folks I was talking to. They came from Cuba five years ago. They didn't speak a word of English. Wow. And now they have a company and they have a government contract. Wow, that's amazing. But I was only able to find out about that because I was out there talking to people and getting to know them. And that's like a, it's, it's such an example of, of again, it, that's the high school sports, yeah. right? That's the thing that if, that uh, you guys would be the first to write about it. If it gets big enough, somebody then somebody on the outside might notice and, and say, And we oh, wrote it. What's that? And we wrote that story. And, right, and you, right, exactly. And, and so the things like that, it becomes more important than to, to be embedded in different parts of the community. Yeah. What, what, parts, what parts are you most interested in right now? Like what are, what are the things that really interest you to, to, to deploy coverage into? Well, I want to be able to, to not just have, you know, I want to be able to go into neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, last month I went to the African Cultural Center to be able to, you know, to speak to them. And we had a panel, you know, of, of Miami Herald reporters so people can, can get to know us. We have to be out there so that they can see that we care about communities. This month, you know, we're going to go to the Lyric Theater again to do the same thing, to be able to be out there in the communities. I like to have more community sessions where, where folks within the community can get to get to know us. They get to see who the editor is. They get to see who the reporters are. You know, I like to go out into Broward and do some of the sessions. I want to go into Hialeah. I know we had a, a, a in, in Westchester, we mm-hmm. had a, a, a newsroom event uh, that was very popular. So I think it starts with us being able to go to different parts of the community. We need to go to Kendall. We need to go to Little Havana. I, I, I want to go out there to different places so that people can see us because if they see us, they know we're here. And that's how we start hearing their stories, and that's how we know what coverage we need to have. Because we go there, we ask them, "What would you like to see?" And you're they're like, telling us, right? And they're telling you, and and it's what you were saying earlier. People need to see themselves reflected in the coverage. Otherwise, they think, "Is this for me?" You know, is this yeah. is clear enough for me? Like I remember a time I, um, I, I want to say that um, the the Herald didn't have like. A lot of black readers, even though the black Southern and black Caribbean make, you know, make up such a big part yeah. of South Florida. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, they don't read us, so we don't cover them. Well, if you don't cover them, they won't read you. Yeah. And, and like public radio is the same thing. You know, if we don't speak to the majority of what our community looks like rather than who our listeners or readers yeah. already are, if we don't make an effort to reflect what the community actually is, then you're never going to get those people, right? Yeah, and, and that and that's how you have to do it. You have to try. You can't just say, "Well, they're never going to read us." 
Because we don't know that. Right. You have to make an effort. Yeah. Like uh, we, we had a, um, a woman who was releasing her book here yesterday, who was a, a Sundial guest, who was releasing her book at the, uh, the African Heritage Center. And it's like that's, that's, a, that's a big part of Miami that, um, you know, when you talk about Black Miami, you know, Black Miami Dade and getting, you know, get, getting folks coverage where they are, they are seeing themselves mm-hmm. in their coverage. Um, and you guys have done a- efforts in that too, right? Like you have a you have a black culture reporter, which yeah. is like a, a a thing that was started shortly while I was at the tail end there. Yeah, you know, uh, Isaiah is a is a great reporter, you know, in doing that. And again, uh, going back to to putting two things together. Mm-hmm. So Veronica was uh, at a at an event covering Hialeah, mm-hmm. and she found out that you know they were trying to annex Brownsville. Oh, right. That became a big uh, uh, complex issue. Yeah. Right? So then Isaiah came in and worked with Veronica to be able to kind of tell the story of what this was, you know, and as it turns out, you know, Veronica was the one that broke the news about this happening. Uh, and, and Isaiah brought in the the knowledge of being able to kind of describe what this neighborhood meant. Right. So you're able to write about both of these issues all together in one because yeah. that's those issues interact, right? Yeah, like yeah. the rest of the city interacts. Absolutely. Right. And that and that's the kind of thing that you can't that you can miss if you're if you're not attuned to them. If you're yeah. not if you're not a kid who grew up in Hialeah, yeah. you might you know, that's there's a part of you that hears a certain a certain sound in there. Yeah. That catches your attention. But we have to be there. If we're not there, we're not gonna be able to hear it. Right. When you look at newspapers and versus the newspaper that you grew up in, right? Talk to me about the coverage and how you've seen it change, right? Like you know, when you're 19 working in a newsroom and you start to see like, oh, why don't I ever read about this community or such and such topic? What are the parts that you're proudest of to see when you when you look at a paper today and your, your well, paper today? Well, looking, looking at, at the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald, really, you know, just knowing that the coverage of Hialeah mm-hmm. is, is back to me is one of the one of the most wonderful things, because I feel that, uh, you know, for many years, you know, we weren't we weren't there. Yeah. A lot of things happen. It's an important city, and being able to say that we have a reporter covering that to me is is, is really important, and, and it makes me feel good to to say that. Yeah, you know, I'm curious about you know the kid who was you know 19 years old and growing up and feeling like you had to have this job to contribute to your household, you know. So then, and you take those scraps and try to feed your mind and and you know have a career, uh, you know, that requires an undergraduate degree mm-hmm. and what have you. And I'm thinking about that kid, and I'm wondering, you know, what the other folks in your family thought of seeing you kind of progress in your career and, and reach this state where you're, you know, responsible for an yeah. important voice. No, it's, uh, you know, my, my mother was very proud of, of, of my accomplishments. You know, my father passed away uh, about eight years ago. They didn't get to see, you know, some of the bigger accomplishments that, I, that I've made over the past few years. But my mother was there. Uh, she passed away in March. Got to see me as oh, interim sorry. executive editor. Oh, she did see you. And and you know and and to me that was that was a very very happy moment for me to be able to tell her, you know, Mama, soy el director ejecutivo interino. I'm, and then I heard her say, "Well, what does that really mean? Are you in charge?" <laughs> that's ultimately what the parents. Yeah. That, that's what they want to say. What well, yeah. does that mean? You're the boss, or what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> you know. So, uh, so being able, f- you know, for her to be alive to see that was very important for me, and it may- still makes me kind of, uh, you know, feel 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 happy that their their efforts were not for naught. Right. You think about sometimes that there's that there's other kids like you out there that that just got here that are picking, you know, they're eleven, twelve, twelve years old. 
that are picking up English for the first yeah. time. Maybe they're from the Caribbean or they're from Latin America. Um, I don't know. Do you ever think about those kids who are who are you know kind of in the same shoes you are as you're as you're setting about you know coverage of the community? I I, I do, and and I and I hope that they they know that hard work still pays off. If you work hard, you can still get to places that you thought you never could. Hmm. You have to try. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe you know, not everybody will be as lucky as I've been, because uh, you can work very very hard and still not be able to achieve your goals. Uh, so I've had, a, so I, I would say that keep trying, and understand that things happen for a reason. Right. Do you have kids? Uh, I don't have any kids. Oh, I, have a, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And I, I'm curious, like what when they think about you know their uncle, like the whether any of them think about community engagement in general, like, you know, that kind of thing. I'm, and, I'm not sure and, they know and, what I do, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Because I, I do think about, like, how, about legacy, right? Yeah. And and have you thought about, about that? You know, you have there have to have been points, especially in the last couple of months, where you think of, you know, I'm this kid that came here um, kind of not knowing what the future was holding, you know, really kind of ripped ripped from what you know. And kind of looking at yourself where you are now, and I don't know if you do give yourself a chance to, to think about that. You know, I don't think I, I, I really have had much time to really think about it with everything that's happened. Uh, but being here in your show today is actually, you know, I've been able to talk about things that I haven't really spoken about in a long time or even thought about in a long time. And, and uh, you know, it feels good to, to be able to tell that story because I do want other people to hear it and know that, that it is possible to succeed even when things look you know bad it can happen right do you think about nicaragua at all and often is it ever do you dream, do you dream of nicaragua you know do you find yourself remembering that place and, and have you ever got I, a chance to go back no i haven't uh, had the chance to go back but i always think about you know and a happy moment you know that, that i think about so you know we uh we had a a big coconut tree in in our house and we had a uh, 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 you know, trees that were kind of went all the way up to the roof. And I remember, you know, summer months, you know, just kind of going to the roof, laying down on the roof and just getting the uh, the air that was coming through and just listening to the radio. I don't know why. I always kind of think of that as a happy moment that that just kind of comes back to me now and again. Right. Of, of not having any care in the world and just being a, a kid. Right. And and now that I mean, when you when you kind of compare like your life here, like, how do you feel about being able to kind of reproduce some of those things like, you know, create that create that uh, life for yourself that that maybe you didn't know what what life was going to hold for you? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that I have a very good life right now. I am, um, you know, I've, I've achieved the things that I wanted to achieve, but there's really so much more that I do want to accomplish. Like you're talking about legacy, you know, I want I want the Miami Herald and Mobile Herald to really be a powerful force in our community. It already is. But I think that there's a lot more that we can do. You know, there's a lot more reach that we can do. There's a lot of more stories uh, that we can tell. There's, there's, there's so much that we haven't told yet about our community. And, and there's so many different things that are out there that they're waiting for us to find them and tell about them. Well, we'll be excited to read about him. Alex, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Thank you, Carlos. I really appreciated this. Our guest today was Alex Mena. He was recently named the executive editor of the Miami Herald, and he's the first immigrant in that position. 
And that's Sundown for Tuesday, September 12th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio. And engineering our board today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, comedian Dale Elliott Jr. finds a way to laugh about his childhood growing up in a Jamaican household. He's on tour and his next stop is in South Florida, but first, he joins us. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.